0: Timothy we're in verse 8 of chapter 1 and we're second week into this series on 2nd Timothy we wanted to look at a book together for a number of weeks coming up to the season of Advent this is what we'll be studying and the last week we talked about Timothy's sincere faith what is a sincere faith Paul commends him Paul is an apostle of Jesus. He's a leader of the early church. And he had this protege named Timothy, and he sent this tender letter to Timothy saying, hey, I see your sincere faith. And then he kind of moves today into a time of challenge for him to secure that faith, to Make sure that it is safeguarded, that it is entrusted to God. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. Let's pick it up in verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Fidilus and Hermogenes, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. This is the word of the Lord. So, Many of you know this about me, and some of you have the same personality. Uh, I'm a hobby person. And what I mean by that is I pick up hobbies, and I do them for a little while, and uh, then I discard them. And so I know that there are a number of you who, who do this as well. And so I'm kind of always on the prowl for a new idea. And I had this idea one time. Uh, this is probably the craziest thing I've ever admitted from the pulpit, by the way. But... Um, I had this idea I wanted to look into. I think I'd read a book, seen a movie, something. I can't remember what it was. It was a few years ago. But I was, my mind and my imagination was captured by this idea of owning a bird of prey. <laughs> uh, to be a falconer or a, a hawker. You know, you see these, these movies with like the, the bird and, you know, they're, you're taking them hunting. And um, I don't know, it just it kind of captured me for a couple of days. And I thought, wouldn't it be awesome to just have a bird of prey, a hawk or a or a falcon or something? And so, um, I don't, uh, by the way, but um, I looked into it, and I I really stopped with the internet research phase, because as I as I looked into it, I came across an article, and the article was very very blunt, speaking to pros, pr, you know prospective uh, hawk owners. And basically, it took the perspective that this is why you should not own a bird of prey. And then at the end, it kind of gave some, some positives of what it, you know, what it might give you. But uh, this article was brutal and blunt, and uh, it told me things like this. Uh, you have no idea of the time commitment. I mean, you think this is going to be easy, but you're going to have to, you're going to, have to hunt this thing like three hours a day. You're going to have to get up at like 4 a.m., and I don't know if this dude was just super intense into it or, or not. But he was writing from the perspective of this is how you do it. And so he said, you you got to get up early every day. You've got to take this bird hunting. Uh, you have no idea of the time commitment. It's dangerous. Like, do you value your own arms and hands? Like, they will be scratched. They will be marred. And, uh, and so just accept that if you're going to become a falconer. And then he said, you know, you think you're going to have this great pet, but this bird will hate you. It's not going to be a warm, fuzzy relationship, okay? It's going to take a decade for this bird to even acknowledge your existence. And you're, this whole time, you're going to be feeding it and taking care of it, and you're going to be giving your life to it, and it's going to hate you, like literally hate you. And I, I read that, and then the article kind of shifted and said, well, you know, it's a great way to connect with nature. Um, these are beautiful birds. And it, like, but it had already worked, right? It had already dissuaded me from getting a bird of prey, which is probably a bad idea in many ways otherwise. wasn't worth it. The article was basically saying whatever you think it will provide you, it won't provide that. And once you understand what it actually isn't, and what it actually is to be a falconer, then you can make an informed decision and you can know what you're getting into. And that message worked for me. There is a message this morning that is similar. It's going to feel a little bit like reading that article to you. Like I'm trying to dissuade you from following the testimony of Jesus Christ. Because there are things about it that are hard. There is a counting of the cost and there is also a recognition of the beauty and the life that's found in Jesus Christ. Uh, Both of those things are true and Paul does both of them in this passage. And it's evident that not everybody who hears the testimony of Jesus Christ finds it worth it. At least in this life. Look at the way that the passage we just read ends. There is this sad note where Paul says, you know everybody in Asia turned away from Me. Vigilists, Hermogenes. They're no longer following the Lord. They're no longer following Me. They're ashamed of Me. They're ashamed of the Lord. But then there's Onesphorus, Who not only was not ashamed, but... We're told that he often refreshed Paul and he sought him out. And so, the hardship, the burden that he saw in following Paul who was following Christ was something that he saw as worth it. And so he gets mercy from the Lord. And it's just true this morning that there is a testimony of Jesus Christ and we need to understand it. We need to be clear on it. And by being clear on what it is and what it is not, helps us to safeguard our faith so that we're not believing something that that isn't true. And then when it turns out to not be true, then we find ourselves walking away. So the best way to safeguard our faith is to understand what the Gospel is not and what it is. That's what I want us to see today. Being clear on what the gospel is not first. The bad news will come first. And what it actually is will safeguard your faith. We are talking about the gospel. That word just means good news. And here's where it is in verse 8 Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. There is a testimony now that appears about Jesus Christ that Paul says you need to safeguard. It is the Gospel message. So first, the bad news. What it is not. What this testimony of Christ is not. There are four things I want us to see that the Gospel is not that Paul emphasizes in this passage. And it's going to be like reading that article. Are you sure you want to sign up for this? Because here's what it is. Number one, It is not a popular message. It is not a popular message. Verse 8, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner. Do not be ashamed of the testimony or of me, His prisoner. Why would someone be ashamed of Jesus Christ? Why would they be ashamed of Paul? And why does Paul say, you don't need to be ashamed of me? Is he kind of being defensive? Is he kind of saying, you know, uh, I I hate how unpopular I am, but now I know who my true friends are, and he's kind of like emoting. Is that what's happening? No, his suffering is tied up in Christ, and there is a tendency to be ashamed of that suffering. Why? Why? Well, the central message of the testimony of Jesus is the cross. And the cross is not a popular message. It is something that is ugly and even repulsive to the original hearers of this testimony. And we have to work to get back to that place because if you've been in church for a little while, we sing about the cross, we talk about the cross, we say, oh, the wonderful cross. We say, the beautiful cross. These are all songs we sing, and they're good songs. But you have to understand that the context of the cross is not like that. It was repulsive. I thought, try to think of a modern equivalent for us. The cross was a... A word where you would be instantly uncomfortable if it was said. Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree from the Old Testament. And I thought of a word, lynching. If I say the word lynching, this whole room, I feel it. It's already uncomfortable. I'm not going to even talk about it anymore because I'm just making a point with the word itself. When you said cross, it was like that. It was like this repulsive thing. Jesus perceived at this stage as a failed prophet. Why? Because he died. A prophet who dies failed. Who had a failed message. Because it was being crushed out by the Roman Empire at this stage. Now we know, we have the benefit of hindsight of history, how this faith grew into the masses and then became eventually the official religion of Rome and then spread throughout the whole earth. And so we see it, but right now in this story, it is being crushed. The prophet died. The message failed. And it had a failed impact as evidenced by those who were attracted to it most. Fishermen. Undesirables prostitutes everybody that you would think you wouldn't want to associate with were the first converts of Jesus's ministry and so it is not true that Paul when he talks about the cross gets a warm reception it is not a popular message it was a shameful message well is that just Paul Is he just kind of speaking for himself? No, this is what Jesus Christ himself said. The testimony about himself from John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world will love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This is what Jesus says about himself so we need to disabuse ourselves of this notion that christianity is popular and of course a false thing that then we would draw from that is to say well if it's just going to be unpopular then we can just be jerks all the time and separate from the the entire world the scripture does not tell us to do that either we're in the world we are participants in it at new valley church here i hope you've experienced this we seek to be a winsome uh group here we don't yell at one another. We don't beat each other with the Bible. We, we have a culture of care and love and inclusion. And so we have said before, I'll say it again, you don't have to believe in the testimony of God to belong in this church. That is absolutely true. And there are people who come to this church, some in this room, who do not believe in Jesus Christ and they have told me so. But they still like being here and I love to hear that. But the flip side of that is that many of us still believe that if we're just hip enough, if we just smile enough, if we're kind of secular enough, that more people will receive the message and find it attractive. There are bridges. There are bridges that lead to the Gospel. But that does not mean just because there is a bridge there that the bridge is easy or that the message is popular, it is still not popular. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. There is a difference in the way this message is received. Figilis, Hermogenes, Anesphorus. Foolishness, not worth it. Worth it and worth pursuing. There's a difference. Still, the message of Jesus is not popular. Why? Because it has to do with these things. Death. Suffering. Your own insufficiency. Submission to someone that is not yourself. Loss of control. Let me just make this statement. It means that your money is not your own and your body is not your own. Even just saying that is so countercultural. The message is not popular. It's bad news. We're going to move faster here. That's the first thing. It's not a popular message. Number two, it is not a carefree life. It's not a carefree life. What does Paul say in the second part of verse 8? But share in suffering for the Gospel by the power of God. Share in suffering. Paul identifies himself in suffering. He is suffering. He's in chains. Notice what he says about himself. Nor of me, his prisoner. Paul identifies himself not as a prisoner of the Roman government, but as His, that is God's prisoner. He's the one who has put me here. He's the one who has brought me into suffering. And you are called, just like I am, I identify with Christ in my sufferings, Paul says, you are called to share with me in those sufferings. He invents a word for that where he says, share, share in suffering. It's one word in Greek. The share with the evil I'm experiencing. He puts it all together. The suffering of Christ, the suffering of Paul, the suffering of following Jesus. Is this another way that Paul's message is different from Jesus? Is the fact that Paul suffered mean that what Je- exactly that Jesus told us to suffer? Here again we see in the Beatitudes. Blessed, Jesus says, are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the same testimony of Jesus and of Paul. Now, how many times are we going to hear a different message from that stated or implied that if you have Christ, then your troubles will go away. If you have Christ, then your pain will always stop. If you have Christ, your relationships will always be healed. If you have Christ, you will always prosper financially. All of these things are told to us. Then, it's the reason why some have left. We'll see that later in 2 Timothy then and now, that message continues to be said. And people buy in. and say this is the message of Jesus. The message is my own success. My own happiness. And then, when it doesn't work out that way, they blame Christianity. It's a bait and switch. You told me this is what it was. But if you read the Scriptures, there is no bait and, sw- bait and switch. He says it right here. To be with Christ is to share in His suffering. Sharing in the suffering of Christ is not a possibility in the Christian life, not even a likelihood, but it is a certainty. It is part of our faith. Paul himself knew this. Obviously, he's in chains, but he knew this from the beginning. In Acts chapter 9, when Paul is converted on the road to Damascus, what does Jesus say about Paul? He says this at the very beginning of his conversion and his ministry. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Christianity is not a popular message. It is not a carefree life. Thirdly, it is not a platform for success. It's not a platform for success. And that's obvious when we look at Paul in his chains. But notice this, how he talks about this deposit in verse 14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Same words that end First Timothy where... Paul says to Timothy again, guard the deposit entrusted to you. The idea of the testimony of Christ is not the fullness of Christ. It is a deposit. It is a down payment, some translations have. It is not the full thing. The message of Christianity is not that you have everything always right away. Even though in a different sense you do. Ephesians tells us that we have every spiritual gift in the heavenly places, but we live in this time where things are not yet truly there. And so it is not a platform for success or for every, your best life fully experienced right now. It is not that. It is a deposit for the future. Fourth, and finally, it is not a build your own faith or religion. What does he say, this command in verse 13? Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Timothy, what I want you to do to safeguard this faith is I don't want you to invent anything. I want you to safeguard the exact words that we have said as apostles. How often is this a misunderstanding for Christianity? Whereas a feeling, or maybe stated explicitly, that when it comes to our faith, this is my truth, this is my uh, perspective. And what Christianity does in the actual testimony of Christ is it makes us submit not to our own ideas, but to the ones who have been passed down from every generation, and our whole life then is seeking to follow the pattern of the sound words. Christianity is not a popular message. It's not a carefree life. It's not a platform for success and it's not a build-your-own-idea religion. All right, are you depressed enough? (laughs) You don't want to get into falconry. I get it. You know, as an aside, this is important for us to do. And it is actually a positive way that we deconstruct our faith. I hesitate to even use that phrase because of the way it's used right now. The deconstruction of faith and what people typically mean by that is I'm having these questions, I'm going to separate from the body of Christ and we're going to work through them outside of Christ. The problem is then you're left with only your own resources and no community and no sense of understanding of what the right framework of truth might be. But... Recently, I heard on a podcast from an author, Kyle Strobel, uh, one of my heroes, he has written a number of great books, and he said to those who are deconstructing their faith, he said, why don't you just stay with Jesus? There's more than enough deconstruction that can happen there. And I thought that was so true, because what we're talking about is that deconstructing. What am I putting my faith in? Do I really believe that it's actually just gonna make me popular? That that maybe, you know, I'll just have everything that I want, or you know, that 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 God's gonna help my business succeed, or something like that. And we have our faith, and it's kind of in Jesus, but it's kind of in these other things. And that's something that does need to be deconstructed. And I know that it's more than that. I know that there are people who feel very dissatisfied. I know some of you feel disconnected. I know some of you feel like you've been hurt and you have been hurt by leaders and by other Christians. And some of you feel like Christians are fake and they often are. And Jesus talks about every one of those things. You can deconstruct your faith with Him. He speaks to those things, but He also speaks to you, the Deconstructor. And what does He say to you? What is your faith in? What do you want? Why do you believe that following Jesus is worth it? Is it really for something other than what it's not, rather than what it is? What is it? I want to look now at what this message actually is. And it turns out it's a whole lot of amazing and beautiful things that do mean it is worth it to follow Jesus. Number one, it is an eternal salvation. Look with me at verse 9. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of, of our Savior Jesus Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. Amazing sentence there. It goes from eternity past to eternity future. Jesus, who was there when the ages began, and is bringing now immortality to light. He's showing us the way of an endless future. The God who always was brings us into what always will be, and in real time, He saves us. It would be a summary of what Paul just said. He saved us. What did he save us from? He saved us from sin and death. His mission is a rescue mission. Eternal life is sometimes put down and poo pooed away right now. As we talk about, man, you know, life right now is the important thing. But the scriptures over and over again point us to a future hope. And if you think about it, the future is what drives all of our decisions. It is what makes us alive to the present that something else is coming. Without that hope, if death is the end, then there is no meaning to what we're doing now. One could argue. He gives us this future hope. And He roots it in Himself. The fact that God is eternal and that He purposed to give us this grace before the ages began. He worked his plan of salvation to bring us into immortality and to bring immortality to light. It is. The message of Jesus is an eternal salvation. Number two, it is a meaningful life. There is now and the future. Look at what he says. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling. This holy calling. We're not just saved and then we wait until the end of our life to get it. We're saved and then called into something else. See what he says? He brought life and immortality to light. Life, then immortality. Holy calling, then salvation. It is now and it is future. It is a meaningful life. You have a role. Paul, even though he's in chains, even though he's about to die, is thrilled with his calling. Look what he says. You can see his excitement, his pride. Good pride. For which I was appointed a preacher. This is verse 11. An apostle and teacher. Paul says... I am a kerox, an apostolos, a I, I am this proclaimer. I am an apostle. I am a teacher. I have given my life to this. And you notice the confidence even in his chains. Even as he's awaiting his execution, he says, this is my role. Echoing what he says, whatever I have lost, the bad news, whatever I have counted the cost for, whatever I have seen that this message is not, now that I know what it is, I give everything for it. And my life has meaning. He brings that confidence. It reminded me of this quote from a somewhat famous um, but unknown Rwandan man. I couldn't find his name anywhere, but he gave his life, this was in the 1980s, And after he gave his life for Christ, his journals were found, and this is a portion of one of his journals. He said, and I think he must have been reflecting on this passage because the language is so familiar. He says, I am a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of His, and I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. Notice how he does exactly what Paul does here when he talks about the past, the present, and the future. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I will not negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, or let up till I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, and preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. There is someone who has counted the cost, what it is not, and seen what it is, and found it even more desirable. It is an eternal salvation. It is a meaningful life. Thirdly, it is a day of justice. Look at verse 12 where Paul roots his hope. Which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. What is that day? That is the day of the return of Christ, the day of reckoning, the day of justice, the day of consolation, the day of everything being made right, the day where everything sad comes untrue. He puts his trust in that, in God who will bring about that day. And even though he has given up a lot, he has gained this hope that everything will be made right and sorted in the end. And notice how his comfort is not in something that he's words that he's believed, but in the person of God. I know not what I have believed. I haven't found some philosophy that that checks all the boxes for me. I know whom. I have believed, and I'm confident that He is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. This is what the Gospel message is, and these are essential things. These are actually our great hopes. When you think about it, what do you want? What makes it worth it to follow Christ? You may want certain things. All of us want things. You may want a new car. You may want more vacation time, more freedom with your life, better grades. You may want lots of different things. But take those wants and try to project them further down. But why do I want that? And why do I want that? And why do I want that? And I believe that you will arrive at some basic human questions that are satisfied in Christ, which are, am I okay? Salvation. You are okay. Is what I do meaningful with my life? Yes. You have a holy calling. Will everything turn out okay? Yes. There is a day of Christ. Every hope, every one of our little hopes are tied to bigger hopes. And they're found in Christ. You know what the gospel is not, but what it is. How do you safeguard that faith? How do you keep that faith? How do you follow the command of verse 14? Guard the good deposit that has been given and trusted to you. You notice, it is not only us that is guarding this. Did you see what Paul said in verse 12? I'm convinced that He is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. He guards our faith and we guard our faith. See, the Scripture here tells us something that is often true when we look at the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That we are commanded to do something that we are not able to do on our own. We are not saved because of our own works this passage says in verse 9 who saved us and called us by a holy calling not because of our works but because of his own purpose and grace and there is that tension again who saves us is christ through faith that we put in christ who guards us well god guards us and then commands us to guard our own faith This is the tension that exists in the Christian life. We are told to safeguard what God Himself has already safeguarded. His guarantee stands on it. So what do we do? We walk in hope and faith. We do the work of believing. John chapter 6. You remember, there's a crowd that comes to Jesus and they say to Him this great question. What must we be doing to be doing the works of God? And Jesus' response to them is, this is the work of God. That you believe in whom He has sent. You do the work by believing in the One who did the work for you. And you entrust yourself to the One who has already said, you can trust Me. And so there's a movement of faith towards what God has already secured for you. And we are called to live into that hope. Salvation. Meaningful life. Day of reckoning. All those things are found and fulfilled in Christ Jesus Himself. How do we have eternal salvation? It's by Christ's sacrifice. How do we have a meaningful life? Christ says, I come that you might have life in abundance. What will happen on that day? Christ will return with consolation and judgment and so we continue in our deconstructing the good kind of deconstructing with christ because we're asking ourselves what motivates me what am i putting my faith in what needs to go is it worth it we ask ourselves these things but we do so with christ because the deconstruction will work and everything else may and will fall away Everything else that you have put your trust and faith in, whatever it may be, but then you will still have Christ, which in the end is all that you have anyway. Let's pray.